Hello everyone, Cold Open here to tell you a little bit about Intelligent Speech. Intelligent Speech is an online conference happening this year on November 4th between 10 a.m. and 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and the theme this year is Contingencies when History Meets the Backup Plan. It's going to have a large number of great speakers. It'll have three keynotes, eight roundtables, and 32 individual sessions in four separate virtual rooms. And we are going to be one of the speakers, together with many other brilliant podcasts you've certainly heard of, such as Daniele Bonelli, Trevor from History of Persia, and several other sibling Rexipods. The tickets are normally $30, but if you act now, you'll be able to get a $20 early bird special. But not only that, as listeners of the show, you'll be able to have an extra 10% discount on this price if you use the code RULE at checkout. R-U-L-E, RULE. We will be participating in one panel and have our very own talk, where we'll tell you the topic in due time, but... For now, suffice it to say that it deals with certain more mythological elements of the life of Alexander the Destroyer. So you can get excited for that. But anyway, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to So You Think You Can Rule Persia, the podcast where we rate and review all the kings of Persia from Diochis to Yazdegerd III. I'm Serial, and my pronouns are they, them. And I'm Umberto, and my pronouns are he, him. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 44, Orodes II. You say the episode numbers every time, like you're surprised that we made it this far. I know. I'm always surprised. Every episode is a gift. It's wonderful. It's hooray. We might get to the end, Serial. It's unbelievable. Well, it remains to be seen. (laughs) We might. We're almost halfway through. I think two episodes from now is halfway, so we're close. And this one is a good, strong, intense episode, which is basically as long as the last three episodes combined, so strap in. Mm. And also, if you've heard of anything of Parthian history, this is probably one of the people you've heard of oh okay. so the bar is high interesting and yeah we'll have to see if Herodes lives up to it or if uh, we're all terribly unimpressed when we actually know the details so yeah i guess we can start with a quick recap of mithridates the fourth what we saw last time where essentially mithridates the fourth and Herodes from today killed their father phratis the third and mithridates made himself king Without having a proper plan on how to... No, nobody had a plan on what to do. It was a mess. But Mithridates then took the throne, had a small war with Armenia, which ended well enough. But then he was overthrown by Orodes and his eastern nobles being led by a man called Surena, head of the Suren clan. At that point, Mithridates escaped to Rome and went to Syria, asked the local governor, please, can you give me my kingdom back? The local governor brought Mithridates all the way past the Euphrates, then dumped him there and went to do something else in Egypt. So Mithridates tried to regain his kingdom, but was eventually defeated and executed in front of his brother Herodes. Which leads us to now. So let's start with who Herodes is and where he comes from. So as we mentioned in the previous episode, he's the second oldest son of Phraates III and younger brother Mithridates IV. 
meaning that he was born probably sometime in 100 to 90 thereabouts BC, which would make him somewhere in his 40s or 50s by the time he takes the throne. So he's not starting out as a 20-year-old ambitious child, but he is actually a more experienced man. We know nothing about what he did as a prince. The first we hear of him is when he murders his father together with his brother. Good introduction. Hooray, yes. So in 57, Mithridates IV becomes king, and we weren't really sure if Herodes is banished by his brother and then has to leave, or if he just sees the way the wind is blowing and just leaves himself before he can be murdered by his brother. That is an option, who knows. But anyway, as we saw last time, Mithridates aligned with the western nobility of the empire, while Herodes found refuge amongst the eastern nobles, among which Surena, which I mentioned earlier. So we have the start of a civil war between east and west, with one king of kings each, and we just go through the events of last episode, where Herodes wins, he manages to make himself king, and Mithridates tries to fix things up, but doesn't really manage to conquer the empire. He takes Babylon and Seleucia briefly, but then these are reconquered by Surena, which hands them back to Orodes, who finally, at last, becomes full king of kings. So it's been only a few months of civil war, and we've secured control of the empire. Hooray! Not bad to get started. Yeah. And yeah, as we mentioned earlier, Orodes has his brother killed in front of him, so at least he can make sure that the deed is done. He's not coming back, which is pretty cold, but fair enough. I see the effectiveness of it. But the problem is that having killed Mithridates, not all problems are solved. Oh, how come? Because as you mentioned last time, the Romans did invade Parthian territory. They didn't attack any Parthian cities or do anything more than cross into territory, but that yeah, counts but that's that an act of war. Yeah. They're basically saying, look at us, we can be here if we want to and you can't do anything about it, which I'm not happy about. You know. Yeah, exactly. They're saying, oh, we can just waltz through, we can just change our mind halfway through for the king we're going to support to rule this kingdom. The world is our oyster, look at us, we're Rome. And of course, Orodes is also rather unhappy that the Romans decided to support his traitor brother instead of him. So everything is going to be slightly problematic, and Orodes knows that eventually a war with Rome is coming. There's a reckoning that's going to arrive. Yeah, and I'm here for it. Yes, it is today, Serial. Yes. So what Orodes does to prepare for this attack is to court the many little kingdoms on the border between these two empires. Basically, the crumbs of the Seleucid Empire that just fell off while the empire was disintegrating. Those are now tiny independent kingdoms, and Orodes tries to attract different kingdoms, especially the ones that are on the Euphrates and provide safe crossings for any army is going either way. So you want to make sure that if somebody's going to be crossing the big river that separates your empires, they're your friends and they yeah. can help or hinder people depending on how things are going. So he courts the ruler of a kingdom called Osroene, which contains the city of Edessa, which is an important crossing on the river Euphrates. 
he then decides to court the Arabian tribes in case the Romans decide to cross through the desert in the south. And the Arabian tribes go to Arodi's side. They say, yep, fair enough. We don't want this massive imperialist power. We'll help you out. F*** the Romans, dude. Yeah, pretty much. Good. So Rhodes has secured two paths into his empire, the Euphrates path, the desert path. One last path remains, and that's Armenia. Oh, God, no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, not again. Yes, unfortunately, Armenia is always there geographically. They will be stuck with this destiny. So Orodes doesn't really have much of an opportunity to make friends with Armenia because Parthia recently declared war on them and recently took part of their land. So the Armenians aren't going to look too kindly on them. Thanks, brother. Yeah. For nothing. And so Armenia seems to be more friend of the Romans. But hey, at least Orodes has limited the amount of routes they can go through. The Romans also wanted to invade Armenia. Like, that was the whole thing, so... Yeah, but if Armenia might think, oh, if I say do it to Julia, not me, then I'll be safe. And they can instead attack the Parthians. Eh, you know. When you're a buffer state, it's a difficult situation to live in. But now, Serial, this is where we meet our main rival for this episode. And I'm going to give you a brief biography of him, so that... We don't feel bad about what happens. Great. (laughs) (laughs) Because let me introduce you to Marcus Licinius Crassus. Oh, I know this guy. I mean, please give me the biography anyway, because when I say I know is... Mm -hmm. I remember the name, but... (laughs) Yes. Crassus, most of you will have heard of him as the money bags of the first triumvirate. He supports Caesar and Pompey by... You know, paying for Caesar's consulship, paying the bribes that Pompey needs to get his veterans' land, all that sort of thing. But how did Crassus get so rich? Well, he didn't inherit the money, so he gained it dishonestly. Because he was a member of a plebeian family who was relatively low socially when he started out, so he had to build his way up from it. He started during the dictatorship of Sulla when Sulla was purging a large amount of people in Rome. Great news is that he then sold off their properties at a very cheap price. And guess who's there to buy them? Our pal Crassus. Hmm. Not only that, but Crassus decided that there were some properties he had his eye on and he really wanted to buy so he could complete his monopoly set. So he decided to make some anonymous accusations to the owners of the property and send them to Sulla, so that, oh look, the owner of the property was charged with treason and executed. Guess we can buy their house for free now. Excellent. Uh, I see. How to make things cheap. Just defamate some people? Yeah, exactly. It's easy. Defamate people and have them murdered. It's pretty straightforward. So Crassus quickly managed to greatly expand his property. He bought a lot of lucrative mines worked by so, so, so many slaves. Mm. Because the Roman Empire is expanding quickly and, hey, what are we going to do with all the people who live there already? Well, we can buy them. Fun. Love this. Yeah, good. Good (laughs) business model. But hey... Crassus also started the first fire department in Rome. Doesn't that sound nice? 
No, because God, he would have thrived in the 1980s <laughs> in the US. Like, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm, what I mean is he is a capitalist. He's like, oh, I'll, fi- He's I'll, worst, I'll, yes. I'll make a fire department. Am I not nice? Also, you need to pay us to put out your fire. No, Sarah, that would be too crass and vulgar. You would never do that. No, but we appreciate a donation. Also, oh, there's not enough fires right now. Oh, whoops. Um, that looks like someone dropped a match right there. Oh, your house is on fire now. Oh, no. Um, well, I mean, we came to put out the fire, but like, looks like your house, you can't live in it now anymore. Isn't that weird? That's pretty close. Apart from being what privatized fire brigades generally are like and how they were in the Victorian period and in certain places now... Crassus had a slightly different method, because he had a lovely fire brigade that showed up to buildings with buckets full of water to just turn off the fire, and they would just wait. Ah. Then Crassus would show up when the desperate owner is in front of this house that's on fire. Crassus would say, I'll buy this house for a fiftieth of the price you bought it for, or we can watch it burn together. Yeah. Do what you want. Very normal behavior. Yeah. And when the poor person thought, I guess I'd rather have something than nothing, well, Crassus would then turn off the fire, and then finally, after it was extinguished, he could have a brand new property he bought for basically nothing. So, nice guy. Yeah. And it was with these tactics that Crassus became the richest private citizen to ever live, including modern billionaires, according to certain estimates. There is no moral way to be that rich. No, nor to become that rich. (laughs) Like, I'm not making any... Like, that is my point. I fully, you know... Yes. It is the truth. Fair enough, yes. There is no need for billionaires in this world. Please leave. Just stop hoarding the money like the dragons that you are. Please. Anyway, yeah, there's no moral way to become that rich. Enter this man who got just... Crassus decides to be a bit more immoral. He hasn't reached the bottom. He needs to start digging. I mean, you know, if you've gotten to this point, what's going to stop you? Conscious? (laughs) (laughs) Nah. Because he has a ridiculous amount of money and Rome is monstrously corrupt, he manages to quickly rise in the political field. And it is Crassus who faces off against a little slave revolt led by a guy called Spartacus. Right. Crassus arrives at his brand new army, decimates it for running away from Spartacus the first time. Because Killing what better one in ten of way to soldiers. motivate your soldiers? Yeah. Yes. Do we need to go into detail about what decimation is, or do we assume people know? Uh, just well, look it up. If you yeah, don't know, look, look it, it up. up. And I am sorry. It is Fair awful. enough. Yeah. There's going to be lots of awful things. It's the ancient world. Mm. And to continue on the awfulness, Crassus defeats Spartacus and captures 6,000 slaves alive. And he crucifies them all on the road to Rome as a sign to everyone else that, hey, look, we're the good guys. Clearly. Hmm. (laughs) And well, as I just mentioned earlier, he became the money man for the first triumvirate. He was also a little bit jealous of Pompey because Pompey just arrived at the end of Spartacus's revolt and claimed half the credit. 
as seems to be a pattern after Lucullus, but you know, there we go. But he sponsored the political career of this bright young man called Caesar. So hooray, these three men are in charge of the Republic. Everything is terrible. But now Crassus starts to feel inadequate. Because Pompey is the great conqueror of Spain and the East. Caesar is conquering Gaul. Crassus wants to conquer something too. He doesn't want to be the one that's left out. So when his consulship is over in 55 BC, he has the province of Syria assigned to him with similar authority to Caesar in Gaul. So he can sort out that situation that started with Mithridates IV and make sure that this new little kingdom in the east can be brought to bow before Rome. And this is the man we're up against, our dear Crassus. Please tell me, please tell me we kick his ass. Please. Have to find out. Oh my god, I will, I cannot, (laughs) please, Umberto, I cannot take it. Like, I cannot take more disappointment, especially knowing, like, I should remember my Roman history. (laughs) Because then I would know. Like, I'm talking about this as if it were, like, a spoiler or something. Spoilers for history. If you don't want to know how history ends, well, don't read here. Damn, damn. So let's see how Crassus' war goes, don't we, Serial? Yeah. Well, Crassus, we're not sure the extent of what he wanted to do. We're not sure what the full plan was. We only have some ideas based on what he actually did. It looks like he definitely wanted to take Mesopotamia and definitely take that over and presumably put a puppet on the Parthian throne. Or maybe, hey, if you can pull an Alexander the Great, he's going to do it. I mean... But that was the starting plan. We'll see how it evolves. Good luck. I don't think this is his his forte. I mean, fighting terrified slaves is slightly different than fighting a kingdom. But we'll see. But so Crassus starts up his campaign by making a few raids around the Euphrates in his first year, taking a few minor border towns just to test the waters, see what Orodes was doing. Orodes didn't really react very much. He just stayed around the capital of Tessaphon and Seleucia with the main army, waiting for the main invasion so he could properly counteract. He didn't want to be outflanked in any direction, so he just stayed central waiting for where the main strike will come. And Orodes sent a messenger to Crassus, and we know what they say to each other because finally sources hooray. Oh my god, right, because, you know, yes, Rome is involved. Yeah. So Orodes sent a messenger to Crassus saying, hey, listen, if Rome is at war with us, then we're going to be fighting a war without truce and without treaty. But Crassus, if instead you're just a greedy old man, then I'm going to be merciful because you're probably just going senile and I'll just give you back your old troops. I love that. So, good stuff. Like, did you mean... Okay, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt here. Did you mean... Like, did you actually (laughs) mean to start a war with us? Is that what, like... Because I read this on your note and, like, I... Like... Are you serious? Is what like if it's a joke? Like you can tell me. I'm. I will laugh. It's fine. Just <laughs> did you mean it? <laughs> Are yeah. you sure? <laughs> really, my dude. Really. 
But Crassus tries not to lose face. Crassus replies, Oh, don't worry, Ambassador. I'm going to give your, your answer in Seleucia, in your own capital. Uh. To which the Ambassador responded, pointing to the palm of his hand, saying, Hair will grow here, Crassus, before you see Seleucia. Nice. So, them's fighting words. Nice. I like this. Also, we don't get the exact words, but we're told that the Parthian messenger also told Crassus that if he had come here for gold, he was only going to get iron. Yeah, get wrecked. But besides getting this great series of insults that we're very happy to actually have, this also shows us that Orodes is very well organized for this war. Because not only does he know Crassus' troop movements, he also knows that this war was opposed by the Senate, and it was just mm. pushed through for Crassus's vanity. Right. So this shows that this war is ridiculous, at least. Like, I don't know how it's going to go, but everyone seems to agree this should not be happening. Yeah, everybody agrees this is just a man with a fragile ego trying to, you know, and guess use what? his billions to try and People are going to conquer. die because of him. Wow, we love that. <laughs> yeah, that's an issue. But he's got money, so who cares? Yeah. He can buy an army. So, uh, yeah, as soon as the winter ends, Orodes took back the small border towns that Crassus had taken the year before and just waited to see what the reaction of the Romans would be. And at this point, Crassus receives a letter from the king of Armenia who says, Hey, I want revenge on the Parthians. You can pass through my kingdom to try and sneak in through the back door and take Tessaphon. But Crassus decided that he wanted to go the more direct route. He didn't trust the Armenians, and he just wanted to cross the Euphrates. So he took a very similar path to the one that Cyrus the Younger took 350 years earlier along the shores of the Euphrates. And he took his son with him, and also Cassius, yes, the Cassius who stabbed Caesar, him, that guy. Oh. Hmm. Although he hasn't stabbed Caesar yet, Caesar's still alive. Right, yeah. And here we get omens, Serial. <gasps> Lots of omens. We haven't had Omen those in a time. while. Yes, very good to have them back. Because Plutarch tells us that a terrible storm broke the bridge that Crassus had built over the Euphrates. Lightning struck his camp. He accidentally gave out funeral food to the soldiers one day. Accidentally? How do you... Yes. Br I, how do you give accidentally funeral food to your soldiers? Like, you should know your own customs, right? Yeah, bureaucratic mix-up, I guess. I, what? Yeah, that wasn't great. And also, when he sacrificed an animal to see the future, those organs fell from his hands. Great, we love, yeah, that's definitely good. Yeah, although Crassus made a joke saying, oh, sure, I'm old, but I can definitely still hold on to my sword. Mm-hmm, all very calming and you know reassuring we also get omens from cassius dio where he says that in rome several statues of the gods began to sweat profusely and be struck by lightning ah i wonder if that actually happened and like what the like <laughs> it was raining one day the <laughs> statues got wet and there was lightning <laughs> and metal statues are good conductors mm. oh, yeah know. if they're metallic i guess yeah i saw bronze statues in my head and also, when Crash's army was trying to move their legion standards, their eagles, mm -hmm. from camp to move east, it looks like the eagles 
didn't want to move. And it took several men to just take them out of the ground and lift them back up. The eagles were like, please no, (laughs) please leave us here. Oh God, oh God, oh God. Oh Jupiter. Yeah. By Jove. Almighty. And also, when the bridge across the Euphrates was smashed by the storm, as I mentioned earlier, Crassus decided to reassure his men by saying, Oh, don't worry, I'm just planning on returning through Armenia anyway. None of you are going to come home this way. Uh, Which is an interesting choice of words. Uh, oof. Yeah. So, um... <laughs> so, yeah. How do you not antagonize your own army this way? But Crassus is confident. He's made oh, sure, it this he far. Sure is. He's I made mean... his billions. Well, how could anything go wrong for him? He is the golden boy. He is Midas. He can touch everything and turn it to gold. I'm sure we don't have to read about what happens at the end of Midas' story. That Everything mm. was normal. Of course. Everything was fine. Because at this point, the vassal king of Osroene comes over to Crassus and says, Oh, listen, I'm switching to your side. I see that the Romans are winning. I'm going to betray the Parthians. Actually, here's a great scoop. Turns out Erodes is terrified of you and is running away from Mesopotamia to head among the Saka. And he's just leaving like a few people to protect Mesopotamia just to make a big show, but he's running away. He's escaping. So if you want to head to Tesfon and take the capital, you should rush for it because Erodes isn't going to be able to attack you. So also, the Saka were on Erodes' side now, right? Yeah. Because it was Mithridates who were stupid. And yeah, he antagonized them. Pay but... them. Yeah. Okay, okay. So, believable, I guess. Oh, fair enough. Except for the part of, you know, Orodes being terrified. But mm-hmm. sure. So Crassus decides, okay, well, he's going to stop following the Euphrates. He's going to just make a beeline for Babylon, Seleucia, Tesphon, that ensemble of cities. And it's also possible that he hadn't received the news that Mithridates had been killed. So he might have also been thinking that Mithridates was still holding on in Babylon right. and he might be able to be a good puppet king. Hmm. He probably had some bad intel in that direction. But of course, as you may have suggested, Serial, the king of Osroene did not actually switch sides. He wasn't being a double agent, he was being a triple agent. Mm-hmm. Because... Rhodes' army hadn't been escaping all the way to the Saka. It had just been drawing the Romans further and further inland to where they were unfamiliar with the territory and they could not get supplies to them. So Rhodes then split up his army into two different parts. His own force, consisting of the large part of the infantry, would go to Armenia, which is more mountainous, it's more difficult to handle cavalry there, so he's going to go that way, and Rhodes will deal with the king of Armenia. At the same time, another force consisting of a large amount of cavalry was given to Surena, the head of the Suren clan, leader of the Saka at this point, who had already defeated Mithridates and shown military talent despite not being 30 yet. So what have I done with my life? Mm -hmm. Yeah, same. And uh, Surena's army is in charge of taking care of the Romans and taking care of Crassus. Also, I don't know how true this is, but uh, Lucian, who is, he's a satirist, so that's why I'm not sure if we need to take it seriously. But apparently he said that instead of legions, the Parthians had groups of a thousand men called dragons, which sounds awesome and I would really love it to be true. I hope it's true. That sounds amazing. Yes, that would be excellent. But 
Hey, let's move back to Crassus's camp. Let's see how things are going there. The king of Osorene, our triple agent, asked to go out with his cavalry to scout for the Romans. So he's going to tell him exactly where the Parthians are. Don't worry, Crassus, we'll go have a look around and make sure that you know exactly where the Parthians are. Crassus thought, of course, yes, please go out and bring us all your juicy intel. Crassus waits a day, waits two days, and then the king comes back. That's great. Good, good. The king of Osirene tells Crassus, oh, I know a very good place you should go to. Follow me, I'll lead you there. Don't worry. No, this isn't a letter by Surena giving me battle plans. Don't worry. Keep going. So Crassus is led to a specific river crossing in a wide open plain, perfect for cavalry. Ah, nothing suspicious here. Yeah. At which point the king of Osroene just disappears and joins the Parthian army. With the majority of the cavalry of the Romans. So the Roman army is now mostly infantry. Apart from a small contingent of Gallic cavalry lended by Caesar. And here we get one more omen where instead of wearing a nice red cloak for a general, Crassus accidentally wears a black cloak. Yeah. He realized after all the soldiers saw him and quickly changed it, but everybody is kind of feeling bad vibes. Mm-hmm. And so now, near a town called Care, the attack begun. Surena took his horse, horse archer, archer. Surena took his horse <laughs> archers. Ouch! Yes, horse archers. Mm, <laughs> That's archie. a thing. So Surena took his horse archers and began pelting the Romans with arrows nonstop. And the thing with being on a horse is that every time the legions tried to run after the horse archers, the horse archers just trot back while shooting behind them. So the legionaries just keep getting hit. At this point, Crassus orders his men to try and make a defensive formation. You know the testudo. It looks nice. It's cool. All the soldiers are putting shields over their heads and in front of themselves to try and make a tiny old box of protection (laughs) from the arrows. And Crassus decides to wait a while, hoping that the arrows are going to run out. And, okay, then we can actually get to -to hand-to-hand fighting that the Romans are good at. Unbeknownst to him, Surena had a whole supply train of camels from the nearest city Constantly bringing new arrows that so they never excellent. run out. <laughs> so that is... When I, you I, research yes. your enemy and learn, yeah. you know, how best to beat them. <laughs> yeah. Also, the Parthian compound bow is stronger than anything the Romans had ever found in the West. And it's very good at piercing Roman shields. Damn. That's terrifying. Imagine that yeah. you have this, like, very particular training... Where you are actually known for, like, good battle strategies. And you have trained as a soldier to withstand many battles in these very specific ways that have proven over and over again to give you an advantage. Because it is a really good, like, Mm -hmm. formation and really good strategy and really good training for soldiers. And then you meet the (laughs) Parthians. And then suddenly arrows go through your shields. And then you're like, uh... mm." So, what now? Yeah, so, Serial, imagine the Roman legionary that is here. There are 35 to 40 degrees because it's summer. Oh, God. It's very warm. The sun is beating down. You're carrying a heavy shield above your head to protect anybody. You've been doing this the whole day. 
If you get tired at some point and lower your shield a little bit, then an arrow goes through and either hits you or one of your companions. If one of your companions gets tired, you get hit. This sounds like hell. Like, truly. Yeah. Also, it looks like these arrows pierce through the shields. So Plutarch tells us of many Roman soldiers whose arms were pinned to their shields by arrows piercing through them, oh, and their feet pinned to the ground by Parthian arrows going through. Crassus then decides that to break the situation, since the arrows aren't running out, oh god, oh god, this is a terrible mistake, oh, Crassus tells his son, take the Gallic cavalry and some legionaries and charge after these Parthians and try and take them down. Because that will work. The Romans look at this Gallic cavalry and it chases after the Parthians. And oh look, the Parthians are running away. Hooray! We're going to be saved. That is when the Parthian cavalry crests a nearby hill. And the Gallic troops and the other Romans find themselves surrounded by the Parthian heavy cavalry. Completely covered from head to toe in metal. Heavy as hell and with terrible so maces cool. and spears. Listen. <laughs> yes. Like full plate armor? It's basically full plate armor, but it's lamellar armor, and the horses are also in full plate. Amazing. <laughs> These are cataphracts. They will f*** you up. Had this been done before? This is a very typical thing from Iran. They do it a lot. Hmm. And yeah, it is their specialty. Love that. The Romans hadn't seen it before, though. So at this point, the light cavalry has lured the Roman cavalry away, so the Parthian heavy cavalry smashes into the Romans, so isolated, and kills them all, destroying them entirely. Sorry. Crassus' son, who was with that contingent, who could no longer fight due to his hand being pierced by an arrow, and all his officers decide to fall on their swords rather than be captured. Fair. <sighs> At this point, the Parthians take the young man's head and parade it in front of the Roman legion, which has been pelted by arrows from morning until dusk. But night has come, so we get to rest a little bit. Isn't that fun? Sure. Surely we get to rest. They need to sleep, right? Yeah. So the two sides separate for the night, and the Romans retreat to the town of Carre. They leave 4,000 wounded in their camp to be killed by the Parthians as soon as they arrive. Hmm. But hey, they were wounded. What were they going to do? And in the town of Carre, the Romans decided they'd like to escape to Armenia in the night, but Crassus is so distraught at how wrong everything is going that he doesn't give the order. What the f***? Yeah. I mean, I knew he was the worst, but like, this is another level of the worst. He is the worst. <laughs> he sucks. Oh, God. <laughs> But I'm the golden child. Everything goes well for me. I bought this expedition thinking it would increase in value, but it hasn't. Mm. Well, then, the next morning, Crassus is finally collected enough to start marching his army towards Armenia. But hey, Surena's just behind him, pelting everyone with arrows as they try to march away and waddle to their protection. And, of course, if anybody's going away to try and get supplies, or if anybody's going away to try and get some water, or if anybody's deserting, they're picked off by archers as soon as possible. So the army is starving, thirsty, in the heat, many dead and wounded. Not going well. And literally with a rain of arrows on them as they run away. Yes. 
But then the arrows stop. And the Romans think, did they run out, finally? Is this the time? (laughs) Should we run? But no! Surena rides to the Roman camp with some companions, and they have their bows unstrung in a sign of peace. Oh. And they send Jessica to Crassus to say, Hey, listen, this clearly didn't work out like you think it would. How about you come in person with an equal number of men to discuss terms? Crassus wasn't especially eager to accept. He wanted to run to Armenia and restart. But his soldiers threatened to kill him if he yeah. didn't negotiate. <laughs> so Crassus reluctantly went over. So Crassus goes to meet Surena and his lieutenants. Crassus has a couple Roman men with himself. And uh, Surena throws a wonderful amount of shade because he asks that the treaty they've decided should be written down and signed by both parties because, and I quote, it looks like the Romans aren't very good at remembering what their deals are. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. So at this point, we're ready to sign the peace. The peace. But when the two sides are heading off to their respective camps, Surena offered Crassus a horse, since Crassus was on foot. And as a steppe people, the Parthians put great stock in conducting their deals on horseback, and they want to make sure, you know, it's an honorable thing to do. Hmm. So Crassus is put on this Parthian horse, and then a Parthian man took the bridle of this horse Mm -hmm. and seemed to lead him towards the Euphrates River. Now. It's possible that the Parthians were doing this just so that the treaty could be signed on the Euphrates, marking the new border between Parthia and Rome, confirming it. But the Roman attendants nearby that were following Crassus thought, oh no, they're going to kidnap our general. Our beloved, beloved. Let's kill them. (laughs) Yeah, great. So one of the Romans decided to kill the man leading the horse of Crassus, and this resulted in a struggle where, instead of being a diplomatic party, everybody got into a murderous tussle, and Surena ended up killing Crassus. And, well, mission over, isn't it? Yeah. Hearing this news, the Roman army surrendered, and the 10,000 surviving men were taken by Rhodes and settled on the east of the empire to guard the frontier against the nomads. There's also a myth, which is that some of these men got all the way to China as mercenaries, and that would be really cool if true, but it doesn't look like there's any evidence to back it up. But Mm. hey, thought I'd mention it. It'd be fun. So all in all, Serial, do you remember the Battle of Teutoburg Forest? Is this Cyrus? No, this is the battle after which Augustus was driven mad with grief, crying, Quintilius Varus, give, oh, me, give back me back my, my legions. legions. Yes. Yes. Varus lost three legions in Germania. Crassus has just lost seven legions in Parthia. <sighs> oh my god, idiot. More than twice as much as Varus, and that drove Augustus mad with grief, and they would never invade Germany again. Yeah. They'll still try to invade Parthia, though. For yes, some reason. But- They've learned that Rome cannot go this much further. Parthia is not like everyone else this far and no further. Hmm, good. Yes. So Surena then took these prisoners and went to Seleucia, mocking the Romans and their customs, making a fake triumph, parading the Roman soldiers around, having hmm. them carry some 
uh, NSFW material that the Roman officers were carrying with <laughs> themselves on campaign as trophies, mocking the Romans that they were so weak that they couldn't even lay off it when they're at war in a terrible campaign. Mm. So, Sureda is very happy. Everything is gone great. But this was just one front of the war. Herodes, if you remember, had gone to face the Armenians with his force. So how'd that go? Well, went pretty well, actually, because instead of fighting, the Armenians just decided to surrender to Herodes and say, can we be friends, please? Yeah. And yeah, sounded great. And Orodes actually had his son and heir, Pacorus, mm -hmm. marry a sister of the Armenian king, who were both children of Tigranes the Great. Mm. So, nice. And at the wedding feast celebrating this occasion, Jessica came over with news from Surena, saying, Hey, remember those seven Roman legions in Crassus? Yeah, they're gone. <laughs> they're, they're entirely gone. There's nothing left. Not only that, but there was also an extra present. Crassus's severed head. Oh, fun. I cannot feel any compassion for this man, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's why I told you his life, so you didn't feel bad for the yeah. horrible, horrible things that you had to go through. Because <laughs> he deserved them. Yeah. And also, it looks like this happened when the King of Armenia and Herodes were about to watch the performance of a play, Euripides Bacche, mm. where, essentially, spoilers for a two-and-a-half-thousand-year-old play, but... It has to do with Dionysus making a bunch of crazed followers of his rip apart the king of Thebes. Yeah. I think it's Thebes. And, well, Crassus's head was used as a prop for the play. Oh my god. <laughs> so, yeah. That's his head of... was a stand-in for the head of Pentheus. Kind of incredible. Yeah. And also, according to legend, which will be reused for many people, such as... The Emperor Valerian, Conquistadors in the Americas, and many others. Molten gold was poured into Crassus's open mouth so that his thirst for gold could finally be sated. Metal. So, yeah. Six Emperor, all his ilk. So, hooray! Roman invasion destroyed. There is nothing left. Orodes has won. Victory at last. But now, Orodes has something to deal with, hmm. because he had the less prestigious part of the war. Herodes just went and made a deal with the Armenians and concluded a marriage. There was no glorious fighting. There was no great victory. Hmm. Surena won the most serious defeat against Rome since Cannae and Hannibal. Hmm. That's going to make people jealous and wonder if maybe Surena should be king. Oops. Herodes has had... One brother try and take his throne. He decides that he won't have Surena take his now. So Orodes has the great general Surena arrested. Mm. And then the poor man is executed to ensure that he would never be a threat. I feel like this is very unfair. It is very unfair. I can see why, but th this is awful. Because, like, yeah. he literally just did a good job for you. And his reward was, you were too good. Be dead now. Yeah. Yeah, that's what you get when you're in a monarchical system. It's not great. You can only rise so high, you can't rise higher than the king. Mm. And yeah, so goodbye to Surena. We hardly knew ye. You were great. And I think we should definitely give him a nice VIP seat mm. together with 
our other friends, Olympias, Eurydice, Bagoas, Parasatis, Megabyzus, and Eumenes. Because the man deserves it. Poor lad. Yeah, I agree. Seed conceded. Conceded? Probably. Con- concedido. What is the word? Yes. I don't know the word. Given. You know what we mean. Approved. Yes. It's a simple concept. You understand. You're all wonderful listeners. So, okay. Awesome. Wow. Do you have a clue what happens now? <laughs> because, well, we have no peace with Rome. They've had their butts handed to them, but mm-hmm. no treaty was signed. So Rhodes decides to take advantage of the situation by sending his son, Pacorus, son and heir, I remind you, together with an experienced older general at the head of an army to try and attack Syria. Hey, maybe we can take Antioch. And this went quite well to start with, because the local population of Antioch invited the Parthians in and just Mm. said, hey, feel free. But that's when the Romans managed to ambush part of the army that contained the older general that Mm. Orodes had uh, sent to watch over his heir. Mm. So now Pacorus is alone in charge of this large army in the west. There was also discussion in Rome about sending Pompey with a force to follow up this expedition and protect the borders, but Mm. this would not be in the end. Okay, good. Because we're told that the new governor of Syria, there to replace Crassus, convinced a Parthian noble to support Pacorus, the prince, over his father. And rumor came back to Herodes, saying, hey, your son might be planning a coup. So Rhodes decided that, hmm, not worth it. I killed my father for the throne. I'd rather not make this a tradition. <laughs> Let's bring Pacorus back into Parthia where he doesn't have a massive army he can stage a coup with. Yeah. Let's just make sure I keep a close eye on him and everything is fine. And yeah, so with this retreat ends the first period of war between the Parthians and the Romans, the first Romano-Parthian war is not really ended, but the first phase of it is. So there aren't really any territorial changes, but the Romans have finally been humiliated. Also, because they've lost all their eagles, which are now happily adorning a temple in Parthia. And at the same time, Armenia has shifted from being a Roman puppet to being a Parthian puppet now. So, made gains. We kind of conquered Armenia. Yeah. And this is the first time since Carthage that Rome has a rival. After the Punic Wars, Rome was a great power with other minor powers it was playing around with. After Antiochus the Great was defeated, they had nobody of a similar magnitude. Now with Parthia, they've learned that things are different. So, yeah. The war doesn't really end again, as I mentioned. It is half and half ended, but everybody decides to make some sort of peace. Also because, in Rome, things are happening. You know that nice young man, Caesar? Mm. Yeah, six months after the end of the Romano-Parthian War, he's crossed the Rubicon Ah. and started a civil war in Rome, so there's not going to be much of a follow-up. But at the same time, Orodes manages to rule and remain calm in his kingdom. His son Pacorus apparently either wasn't in on the usurpation plan or wasn't really serious about it because when he comes home, he isn't executed or anything. He's just kept there. And it seems like Orodes really liked his son. Mm. He just really cared about him and wanted to make sure that he would be his legacy and would succeed him and teach him everything he knows. 
So, you know, it seems like a relatively good relationship unlike others that we've had so far. Yeah. But now civil war is happening in Rome and many eastern kingdoms are in contact because Pompey is calling up all of his old friends from ye olde days when he was a young hotshot cosplaying Alexander. Mm-hmm. And so he calls up all the vassal kings he established in the east and he also tries to make an alliance with Herodes. Mm. Herodes is sort of interested. He doesn't really care who's in charge of Rome as long as yeah. they know to stay in their place. So Herodes says, you know what? Give me Syria and I'll help you. Pompey says, no, 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 Syria. No, we need Syria, please. It's big and lucrative. I'll, we'll keep it. Thank you very much. Right. And the next year, he lost the Battle of Pharsalus against Caesar. Yeah. So maybe he should have conceded Syria. Yeah, you know. At this point, Pompey had to flee somewhere where he could regroup. And he considered asking Herodes for asylum and saying, hey, we can rediscuss that Syria plan if you help me out now. <laughs> but Pompey's friends objected and said, no, 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 go to Egypt. The children of Ptolemy XII, oh, no. who you established there, will help you. I mean, they would recognize that you're the reason they're on the throne. So, of course, they'll be generous and aid you in fighting Caesar. This did not go well for them. Yeah. Yes, as you're saying... Ptolemy XIII, and, uh, well, his sister-wife Cleopatra was elsewhere, but Ptolemy XIII killed Pompey and handed his head over to Caesar, something that Caesar did not like. Yeah, he was like, hey, I, I got the guy. Yay, right? And Caesar was just horrified. Yeah, he was like, like I was going to hell? pardon him. My thing is that I pardon everybody as a PR move. What are you doing, you absolute monsters? You can't kill a consul of Rome. You're just kings. You're beneath us. Damn. But Rhodes doesn't really care. I mean, Pompey was the big threat in the East he heard about from his father. Now he's dead. Mission accomplished. In the meantime, Rhodes decides to try and take all these little vassal kings that the Romans had in the East. And now that Pompey's dead, he decides, well, I might as well try and seduce them to my side and gain them for our kingdom. So he marries the daughter of the king of Commagene, which is a small kingdom where the Euphrates starts. So that's an extra crossing that's been secured in case of future invasions. And yeah, Orodes continues to live peacefully enough for several years without much interference. Amazing. Really? Yeah. I'm like, are you, are you kidding? <laughs> like, <laughs> No, it's fine enough. But then he gets a letter from Jessica. Ah. She has news from the West. Oh, hell. It seems that dictator for life, Julius Caesar, has decided to launch an expedition against Parthia. It's going to be his crowning achievement, and it will get him all the way to India. He can try. Yeah, and it is kind of threatening, because he has about 12 legions in Macedonia, and Caesar is going to join these legions on the 18th of March, 44 BC. But before he does, he just has one last meeting in the Senate to... uh, you know, discuss what's going to be happening when he's gone and say his farewells to the senators and make sure everything's going to run smoothly while he's off in the east fighting. Mm-hmm. So on the Ides of March, 44 BC, uh. Caesar attends this last Senate meeting where he is brutally stabbed to death 23 times by his fellow senators. Guess no more invasion. Well, good for us, I guess. Yeah, these armies will have to be used for the civil war that is coming. 
And yeah, it seems like in the civil war between the murderers of Caesar and Antony and Octavian and all those, Herodes didn't just send some cavalry in support of Caesar's murderers, but didn't really do much to involve himself. He was saying, mm. yeah, if I can get some favors, that's cool, but I don't really care that much. The next important point arrives when, well, Rome is sort of at peace and it has a new triumvirate. And this time, instead of having a billionaire man-child in charge, Mark Antony is there. Mark Antony is in charge of all of the East. And it seems like he's quite taken with Egypt, and he's caring a lot about this conflict with Octavian, so he isn't really paying attention to Syria. Also, Antony had replaced several pro-Parthian rulers of border towns, and these deposed rulers had come to Herodes for help. At the same time, a Roman general that was a supporter of Pompey, a man called Quintus Labienus, wanted Parthia's help in reviving the Pompeians' cause under Pompey's son, who was still alive being a pirate in the Mediterranean. So all these factors work together to ensure that Herodes thinks it's time to finish the war that Crassus started. We need to invade Roman territory. So Herodes takes his son Pacorus, who has, in the meantime, grown into a strapping young man who is both tactically clever and a beautiful, beautiful fellow, and he is put in charge of an expedition to invade the Roman East and crush everything. So Pacorus takes the southern route, Labienus takes the northern route, and this expedition goes perfectly. Syria collapses under the first assault. It is just taken by Parthia, and many of the Roman soldiers that were garrisoned there just defect to Labienus after receiving pamphlets wrapped around some arrows that were launched into the camp. Yeah. The pamphlets said, if we can reach you with pamphlets... Guess what else we can do? <laughs> and everybody thought that was convincing. I love that. So, yeah, then the large army splits apart. Labienus takes Anatolia, conquers it for Parthia, while Pacorus takes care to conquer the rest of Syria and Phoenicia, except Tyre, because if Alexander the Great took a year to conquer it, Pacorus does not have this time. Mm. And then Pacorus marched south to the Roman client kingdom of Judea, where he removed the puppet high priest the Romans had put there and installed his own candidate on the throne, for which he received a significant amount of cash because dynastic conflicts as always. And also here I read that it looks like the new Jewish king bit off the ears of the old high priest so what? he could never rule again. I... I don't know. I can understand cutting them off, but biting them off is a next level what? What the heck? So yeah. I don't know why. I guess you want to do it personally, but still. Romantic ear chewing went too far? I don't know. Is this like slander? Or like, is this a thing? Is this it's from a Jewish source, but to be fair, <laughs> they don't like this other king. Hmm. So, mm -hmm. could just be propaganda probably is but still it would be insane if it weren't so great at this point the parthian borders have spread to egypt in the south and to the hellespont in the west we basically are just a step away from rebuilding the achaemenid empire just need egypt and we'll be done but at this point antony finally realized that something was wrong oh look at him he felt like half the East was missing and realized, hmm, I might have to deal with this stuff. But he was having kind of a conflict with Augustus. It looks like 
Antony's wife had declared war on Augustus and everything looked like it was about to collapse. It was weird. So Antony appointed a lieutenant, a man called Publius Ventidius, who is the coolest Roman you haven't heard of. Well, the second coolest. There's another one later on, but hey. Mm-hmm. And Ventidius is given charge to conduct this counteroffensive. He starts by invading Anatolia, which, to be fair, wasn't too strongly held by the Parthians. They just rushed through and uh, taken a few key strongholds. Mm-hmm. But the Romans keep marching forward and forward and forward in Anatolia. And Labienus tries to intercept Ventidius, but when he does, that part of the army is destroyed by the Romans. So one branch of our invasion is gone. Not great. News arrives to Pacorus, who then decides to, you know, march north quickly into northern Syria to face the Romans and try and stop Ventidius and ensure that Syria and the Levant would remain Parthian. But once again, Ventidius is victorious. He manages to break the Parthian army and send them running away home. Pacorus himself decides to retreat back past the Euphrates to try and regroup while the Romans take Syria again. So we're back to the borders at the start of the war. But it's not over yet, because it seems that the Syrians were quite happy under Parthian rule because they were more independent. And Pacorus still had a puppet king in Judea. He had to help out. So he decided to take a new army, cross the Euphrates again, and try and fight the Romans. But unfortunately for him, he was led into a trap by Ventidius, who had fed him with false information repeatedly. And during the fighting, not only was the Parthian army defeated, but the heir to the throne, Prince Pacorus, who had just the year before been made co-king with his father. No! is killed. Oh, god damn it. Yes. Oh, that sucks. We're doing so well. It seems that the death of his son and heir caused an extreme amount of grief to Herodes, who, seeing his legacy, his boy, dead before him, would neither eat nor speak for days and would often hallucinate seeing his son and hearing his voice. Oh, that's awful. Yes, the poor man who was oh, was happy, he was in his 70s, he was just ready to hand over the reins to his son, now he has nothing. In the meantime, the war ends, Antony retakes all the lands that Pacorus had taken, places King Herod the Great, yes, the one from the Bible stories, Mm. on the throne in Judea, and even though there is no formal peace, the war is over. Mm. So now what? Because Orodes had been betting everything on Pacorus. None of his other sons had seemed worthy of the succession to him. Everything was bet on Pacorus, who had, by all accounts, been a very capable man and ready to succeed. Orodes doesn't know who to look for, so he just goes for the next oldest son. He says, yeah, sure, you'll do. But has not, like, trained him at all. Yeah, he's not trained at all. He does not have the skills to do this. He is just the next oldest kid. Yeah, sure. I am grieving too much to think about this. So his next eldest son, Phraates, is appointed as successor to Orodes. And not only that, but Orodes just gives up the throne. He can't. He can't anymore. He just surrenders his crown. And then we have two versions for how the story ends. The first version is that Orodes just died of grief a few weeks later Hmm. because of Pacorus' death. 
all his legacy being destroyed, he couldn't handle it anymore. The second one is that Phraates, as soon as he became king of kings, started executing all of his brothers who could be a threat to him, since he was only the son of a concubine, not the son of a full wife. Hmm. And when Herodes tried to stop his son from killing all his other sons, Phraates decided to try and have his own father killed, first by increasing his medicine to a dangerous dose, and when that didn't work, he had Herodes strangled. So Herodes, who had killed his own father, ends up killed by his son. The end of his, his sad, sad tale. Mm, so, what are your thoughts, Serial? Uh, this was a really cool story. Yes, there was a lot in it. <laughs> but finally, we have some sources, which is good. And it's poor Rhodes. He had a wild life, if you think about from start to finish. There was a lot going on. Yeah, that was really incredible. Also, like, cool person. Yeah, exactly. He seems like a really interesting person with everything going on. Yeah. You really feel for Pacorus. And, uh, yeah. The image of Pacorus and Orodes, I see them a lot as Rostam and Sohrab from the Shaname, which is a very good story. I will link the reading from Las Plumas de Siburg because it's very good. You should definitely listen oh, to it. Fun. So, yes. But there's a scene there that really strikes me as, yes, this is what... It probably ended up as with Erodes destroyed by grief. Mm. Uh, but yeah, so do you think you're ready to rate this man, yeah, Serial? Let's, rank him. let's go for it. So, our first category is final moments. How interesting do you think his death was? Dying of grief or being killed by his son after his favorite I mean, knowing, son and heir was knowing the killed? story? Cool. Yeah. Like, very poetic. I like it. It's not, like, an incredibly interesting death, but it's a great end no, to I, the I, story. Yeah, the environment around it. Yeah, exactly. And tragic. I think it's a very apt death for him. I think it works very yeah. well in his... Uh... I'm going very high, honestly. I don't know if... Oh, no, I'll go for, like, a six or seven. Only a six? Yeah. No, I like the drama of everything. I was wondering if a ten... Oh, no. I wouldn't go for a ten... I think an eight, though, definitely. I think that that is a very good death. Very sad, but poor lad. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I think we can go with an eight and a six, which gives us a seven out of ten for final moments. Our next category is battle hardness. How good was he at war and fighting? Very, apparently. This is a tale of multiple parts. <laughs> there was a lot of fighting going on. Because, well, first of all, he took the throne from his brother. He went to the east, took the help of the Saka, and went and took the empire for himself. So, war won, successful. Second part, he lost a bit of land to Mithridates at the start of his counterattack, when he thought he was supported by the Romans. But then, Orodes came back, took the land that Mithridates had taken, and killed his brother. Mm -hmm. So, war number two won. After that, there's Crassus's campaign, which is the worst defeat Rome has suffered in a long, long time, and is the start of this immense rivalry and not only does he do that he also manages to just with a show of force get armenia to his side so he destroyed seven roman legions secured his territory and also got armenia so that's great stuff 
He then tried to invade the Roman East. He marched west into Syria. The first time didn't work out, a general died, and then he recalled Pacorus because there might have been a coup, who knows. And then after that, there's the large eastern expedition at the end, where Labienus and Pacorus basically conquer Anatolia, all the Levant, which is massive increment in territory, but then eventually they lose it all. And not only that, his son Pacorus is killed in battle at the very end. So there are some great things, but also some pretty serious losses. I mean, there's a reason this border remains basically constant for the next half a millennium, because this is both sides learning that they can't deal well with the other's terrain, and that they're more adapted to fighting their own lands. So I'm very conflicted for battle hardness, because, you know, Carré is incredible. It does an amazing job. The first half of his reign is just, wow. You know, if he had died just, you know, a couple years earlier, then he would have died with the maximum expansion of the Parthian Empire undefeated. But since he lived a little bit longer, he saw the west of his empire collapse and return to the pre-war borders. So what are you thinking, Serial? What is your mood for there? Because I think definitely more than a five on my side. It's definitely much better than average. Mm -hmm. I don't think I can give a ten. I'm floating around an eight. But I'm I think an eight sounds perfect. It was really good. Yeah, and compared to other grades that we've given. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. An eight sounds good. Yeah, an eight is what I gave Antiochus the Great, and this feels... Similar, I guess. It's like victory, 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 victory. Oh no, defeat that undoes all the victories. <laughs> Which I guess it doesn't undo them entirely. We'll talk about it in uh, Aaron Shine, but still, it, it undoes your territorial conquests at least. Mm -hmm. So, okay, with an 8 and an 8, we get a 16 out of 20 for battle hardness. Our next category is scheminess. How good was he at plots and manipulation? There is some of this. There isn't an amazingly large amount, but some of it. Because he killed his father. That's a thing. He plotted with his brother to kill his father. So some scheming there. Next, he... Well, he managed to give false information to Crassus to mislead him and draw him ever further so that the final Battle of Carre could be had. So that's a point of scheming, I believe. And then besides that, he doesn't do anything too, too schemey overall. He has, yeah, the rest is mostly diplomacy with different sides of the Roman civil wars. They're popping up and they don't really count as plots or anything. So I'm thinking like a two. That's what I'm going for. How about you, Serial? Yeah, sounds good. Mm -hmm. I'm just agreeing with you this episode, but yeah. <laughs> Alright. So, with a 2 and a 2, we get a 4 out of 20 for scheminess. Our next category is shock factor. How shocking was this man? We have more to talk about here. Because he, well, again, kills his father. He has his brother killed in front of him so that he can make sure that the deed is done. That's... Kind of intense. He starts a civil war to overthrow his brother, who had succeeded semi-regularly. He also has Surena killed. Despite winning this massive victory, he decides to 
kill his most valuable and most skilled general because he's a threat to the throne. That's not great. Maybe if Surena had been around, Parthia would have actually been able to hold on to the Roman East and things would have been better. But we don't know because he was killed for being too good at his job. Mm. And then shocking, I guess you could put at the end, if you want, the fact that he just gave up at the end and didn't really think about the succession, just said, yeah, sure, you'll do. You're the next oldest, I don't care anymore. And that wasn't great, because then all his other sons ended up murdered Yeah. because of this. If he had chosen somebody more stable or more skilled, then okay, probably would have not all died. So, not huge, but notable at least. I'm thinking three for father and brother murder, a two for Surena because, ouch, two or three maybe. And at the end, I'm just going to give it a point to round it up to six. I don't think it deserves too much for the ending, but just like a tiny little bit. Maybe a five. I don't know. What's bringing you downwards? No, no, a six. That makes sense. I was counting wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Because, yeah, it is pretty shocking. There is a lot, and it's a, a wild ride. So with a 6 and a 6, he gets a 12 out of 20 for shock factor. Next category is Aaron Shine. How good was he for the Empire in general, and Iran in particular? Well, long story. So let's start with the positives, then we can go down with the negatives. <laughs> Positive is he managed to fight the Romans and defeat them. He managed to assert that Parthia is now here to stay. Hmm. You know, destroying Crassus' armies is a great amount of prestige, and also now he has seven legion eagles in Tessaphon that they can just keep and just show around to the guests, and if a Roman ambassador comes by, they can just wave them in front of the Roman ambassador's face and (laughs) say, ha ha, we have your eagles. So that's pretty good. He also gained Armenia. You know, not just a bit of it, like his brother, he gained all of Armenia as a vassal, so that's good. As a positive, he, well, depending on your point of view, he got to the maximum expansion of the empire by arriving on the shores of Greece and the Levant, which was extremely good. He had a son that was great and was trained to rule. Yeah. On the downside, that son died. Mm -hmm. The Western conquests were lost. And there was no permanent peace with Rome. There was no treaty signed. The war is still technically on, despite everybody agreeing that, yeah, let's leave it for now. And also, he gave the throne to somebody who he just basically chose randomly and sort of is thinning out the royal line by killing all his brothers. So that's not ideal. I feel like the Empire is better off for him. Yeah. I don't think... It's definitely not a 10. There are no great reforms. There's no great reconstruction. I'm between a 7 and an 8 because, you know, what he does in asserting himself with Rome is really important, but also he doesn't defeat Rome. It's... You could almost say that it's his... Not fault, but it's because of how he handles things that this is going to be a rivalry for centuries and... It's not just immediately won by Parthia, who rebuilds the Achaemenid Empire. That's a bit harsh, but you could make the argument. I wouldn't, but you could. 
So yeah, I think I'm going to stick with a 7. It's quite good, but not properly great. I agree with you. Just lots mm-hmm. of agreeing this episode. <laughs> Fair enough. But yeah, so with a 7 and a 7, we can give him a 14 out of 20 for Eren Shine, which makes him the third greatest Arsakid after the two Mithridates. The two good Mithridates, not Mithridates mm. 4. Which is the worst Arsakid. <laughs> And that brings us to our next category, which is Face of Faces. What do you think this man looked like? I will need a moment. Yes. In the meantime, I will tell you an interesting fact that is going to be carried on for the next about 100 years in all the Orsakid kings. Because Orodes had a royal wart on his forehead. On the left of his forehead, he had this wart that apparently seems to be transmitted to all his descendants. Because in coins for a hundred years, they will have the same wart on their forehead. Weird. Yeah. Wait, but they're not the same person? No, it's just like, they're different people. You can see the face, they're different, but they have this wart. Oh my god, the royal wart. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of like their version of the Habsburg chin. Well... Where it also shows that you're a member of royalty, because, ah, look, I have the thing that shows that I'm royal. Well, that's called incest. Yes, and when brother-sister marriage is a thing. Yeah. It's even worse than the Habsburgs, but hey, it's a fun fact that they will have. Now we'll see what you create, what you think of Erodes, and what he should look like. Okay, so Serial has finished their drawing. Let me pick it up so I can describe it to you all. <laughs> I like the start. Good, good, strong. So we have an excellent portrait of Erodes here as he stands there. With nice pants, as all civilized people, unlike the Romans. He has a nice uh, tunic that close in front, as usual. A strong beard, hair tied together with a royal diadem and the royal wart we just mentioned. And in one hand, he is holding a spear upon which the head of Crassus has been placed. Because, hooray, we defeated him. And then we have a Roman shield, which has been entirely pierced with Parthian arrows to show where that head came from. So that is excellent, Serial, and perfectly encapsulates what happened this time. You're welcome. So if anybody wants to look this up, you can go to our website and go to Serial's Portrait Gallery, or you can press the link in the description and find all our show notes. But now let me show Serial what he actually looked like, and you can tell me what you think about him. I have two coins, because in one of them, the royal wart rubbed off. Uh, and I wanted to show you what it looks like. It's kind of so important. You yeah, see. you told me about yeah. it, which is why it's on the portrait. So, I am not psychic. Here we are. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, cool. Uh, but, you know, not that different. I mean, we have a sun and a moon, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. It's a coin of a profile looking to the left. Much like other coins we've seen, a bit more stylized following the... Style change that we saw with the last coin, with Mithridates. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's wearing a diadem and has slightly, like, short-ish hair, like, down to a bit further down than the ear, or earlobe. Yep. A beard, and the wart, like, on the forehead. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not super impressed. I like the sun and the moon. Yeah, those are quite nice. Uh, they're uh, a religious symbology, but... Yeah, the main thing I have to say for this portrait is the wart is new and interesting. 
Yeah. But otherwise, he looks like, oh, yes, this is a Parthian king. If it weren't <laughs> for that one thing, I would have been like, yeah, this is one of them from this period. So, yeah. Mm, I think I'm going to stick with a five just because there's the wart and it's like, okay, yes, I would recognize you because of that. But otherwise, I it's guess. not. I'll go with a four. I'm not impressed. I don't blame you. That's fair enough. Okay, so with a 5 and a 4, he gets a 2.3 out of 5 for Face of Faces. Our next category is lengthiness. How long do you think this man ruled? Uh, 10 years? 10 years? Actually more than that. Ah. I mean, I was going for yeah. the minimum that I thought would like make sense. But I was hoping mm -hmm. for more, so I'm happy to hear. Yeah, he's managed to live long enough. So he managed to reign, not live, from 56 to 38 BC, basically going through the first triumvirate and bit of the second and the civil wars in the middle. So he had a lot to experience and he got quite well. So those are 18 years, which divided by 10 give us 1.8 out of 5 for lengthiness. And that takes us to the final score, which is to say a very impressive 57.1 out of 100, which makes him the second highest scoring Arsakid after Mithridates II. Whoa. And also places him above Cyrus the Great and just below Cyaxares, just 0.7 points below Cyaxares. So he is in great company up in the 50s club making him 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, ninth highest scored king we've seen so far, making Cyrus 10th, by the way. So yeah, that is quite an impressive score, but that does not guarantee his next place, because we want to ask, is he defeating Crassus enough? Is he interesting story enough? Is he tragic ending enough to be called a Shahan Shah? Or is he just a Shahan Nah? I don't know. You don't this know? This was a really cool story. I'm like, I was going to say, oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, You're, why are you unconvinced? Tell me. I feel like this episode was fueled more by my hate for Crassus than, like, actually for Orodes. Although he did a good job. That's fair. But I, I like how Orodes... We can give it to him. We can yeah. give it to him. and Because if you, you think know. how he started up and everything went and there was like, oh, start up... Civil War, then he goes, defeats Crassus, great victory, then he loses his son, oh no, it's so tragic, it's the end. But yeah, I think I definitely remember him. I think he's worthy of memory, especially because this is the part of Parthian history most people remember. Right. Carre is definitely memorable. Carre is mentioned in the same sentence as Teutoburg and Cannae and Adrianople because it's a terrible, terrible Roman defeat, and we did it this time. Hooray! So yeah, Orodes, congratulations. You are our new Shah and Shah. You can go up to the Paradise Gardens and enjoy your great reward for the sad ending you got. You can talk to Sinatrukis, your grandfather, and tell him, yeah, there's been a bit of family murder in, mm. in the last generations, but hey, the Empire is doing well, and those Romans you refused to help against, we defeated them, so that's great. Hooray. So there we go. That is the end of today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you had a good time figuring out what Carrie is and how everything played out. Next episode is going to be Phraates IV, who, as we saw, started his reign by breaking his father's heart. Oh, yeah. Well, and uh, 
We'll Allegedly. see if he does a good job or not. <laughs> Allegedly, yes. One of the two. But yeah, we'll see if he does a good job or if he just throws all the advantages that we've gained so far away. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, we have two methods to do that. You can either support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash so you think you can rule Persia, where in exchange for a small monthly payment, you can get extra episodes coming up. We have recently put up the Cyrus the Younger special we did a while ago with uh, the history of Persia there. And we're going to soon be having the episode on Tigranes the Great. I am excited. So you can find out that side of the story. If instead you'd prefer not to support us monetarily, that's also fine. You can just tell your friends about us or give us a review on your podcast app of choice so that more people know that we exist and can join us and learn more about these not-too-often-discussed part of history that deserve more of a spotlight. Yes. But yeah, so without any further ado, I think we can say goodbye, and we hope to see you next time. Take care. Goodbye. Bye.